Back to the Future is probably the greatest movie of all time. Here we are. Or maybe that's a little bit too much to say, and maybe we say it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's certainly the best time travel movie ever made, uh, bar none. And one critic that I read this week said this, that he said, to put it bluntly, if you don't like Back to the Future, I don't believe that you like films at all. So, if, that, if you're in that category of not liking Back to the Future, this guy would question your ability to even judge any kind of film. Uh, but I saw this picture this week, uh, which, was really, which made me laugh. This is uh, Emmett Brown and Marty McFly. Uh, and he says, whatever happens, Marty, don't go to 2020. So he was right. Um, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to jump into our DeLorean time machine, the Back to the Future time machine, and we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to go back to a world that was uh, that is as different as 1955 is uh, from 1985, which is how the first movie works, to a time where we didn't have to wear masks, where we didn't have to social distance, where we could, uh, where we didn't have lockdowns, we didn't have rules of six, and we didn't have the sad reporting of statistics every day. And that day is February 2020. Remember those days with all the hugs and the uh, singing that we were able to do. <laughs> well, in 2020, in February, we began a sermon series in 1 Corinthians, uh, which we then put on ice during uh, lockdown. Uh, and we said right back then that 1 Corinthians is a book about how God's grace transforms a messy church into the people and community of, uh, of God that he has called and designed them to be. Now, before we plough back into the series, we thought it would be helpful because everybody's probably scratching their head thinking, now, where were we? Uh, we're going to jump in to our time machine and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to hear what Paul has to say to the Corinthians. So, everybody ready? Everybody at home ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But before we read it, let me set the context, okay? So... In 1 Corinthians, as we open it up, we find it's the city, it's sent to a church in the city of Corinth, which was a confident, self-assured, and modern city. It was a cosmopolitan melting pot of people from all across the Roman Empire who had come to Corinth seeking their fortune to make money from the busy seaport that was operating in Corinth. And if you were a Corinthian, you were proud of your city's status. You would have been proud of the fact that it was an ambitious city. It was a cutting edge city. It was a city that prided itself on its sophistication, uh, but it also prided itself on its kind of uh, sexed, crazed paganism. And it was, outside of Rome, one of the centers of Mediterranean life and culture. So it was a, it was a kind of a London, New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, all wrapped into one. And the word Corinth among Christians it's, would sort of be a, a, a sort of a byword for everything that was opposite to Christianity. So that's where Paul is writing to this church. They find themselves in this city. So it's little wonder that if you read Acts 18 or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that you'll find Paul say, when I got to Corinth, I was weak, I was fearful, I went in great trepidation because of the culture that he was confronting. 
Now, if you want to read more about Paul's uh, missionary journey to Corinth, it's Acts 18. You can turn there. He arrived in the city in probably AD 50. He teamed up with a couple called Priscilla and Aquila, and he began to preach the gospel. And the grace of God abounded, and Paul was very successful as many of these Corinthians came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a miracle that the seed of the gospel would find root in such hostile soil. And in fact, I read this this week, uh, one commentator, a guy called J.C. Pollock, who wrote a commentary in the 1960s, uh, he said this, and it really encouraged me as we think about the gospel going forward in our city in Bristol. He said, if the love of Christ could take root in Corinth, the most populated, wealthy, and commercially minded and sex-obsessed city in Eastern Europe, then it can prove powerful anywhere. And I thought that that's absolutely right for us, a good reminder. If, it can, if the gospel can be effective in Corinth, we can have confidence for us in Bristol here. So Paul stayed 18 months in Corinth. He preached the gospel, he established a church, and eventually then he headed back to Antioch. But about two and a half to three years on, he gets a report that things in this church have got messy. So while he's in Ephesus in, uh, in 54 AD or AD 54, He receives a a report from Chloe's people. He tells us this in chapter 1, verse 11. And the status update on this church is that it is ugly. The church is ugly. It's dogged by conflicts and controversies and um, compromises. There's divisions in the church. There's different factions that are fighting as people side with their favourite leader. And they're holding petty and small and selfish arguments about who's the best. There's snobbery that's rife in the church as the rich people keep themselves to themselves and the poor people are left and abandoned and the outcasts are not having their needs met. There's great decadence in the church as well because there's extreme sexual immorality going on that even pagans find offensive. The church is suing one another in the law courts to make money from one another and there is a severe lack of love. Then there's doctrinal problems as well. They are believing wacky things about marriage and relationships and food sacrificed to idols. And they're fudging the doctrine of the resurrection, which is kind of a theology 101. And then there's disorder in the church. So when they come together to to enjoy the Lord's Supper together, the, the rich people are going first and they're getting drunk on the wine. And there's nothing left for the poor people. And then their Sunday gatherings are just a cacophony of people trying to speak in tongues and show that they are the most spiritual. And it's all a bit of a mess. The Corinthians thought that they had, uh, had reached a boss level spirituality. They had prided themselves on being spiritual. So all the way through the book, we'll find themes where Paul is addressing them on them thinking that they possess wisdom and knowledge and power and they believed that they had reached such a level of faith in their Christianity that they had left Paul behind. That Paul, the great apostle in their eyes, was actually an unspiritual, ignorant and weak, foolish man. But these issues of disorder and decadence and division and, um, <clears throat> and, and the like were symptoms of a much more serious, deeper, darker problem that was going on. And the disease that they were infected with was the, as one commentator puts it, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that there was too much of Corinth in the church. The lust for the culture's way of thinking, the culture's values, the culture's 
emphasis on wealth and power and style over substance and upward social mobility and liberal sexual ethics had infiltrated and flooded the church and had washed away its good gospel foundations. Just uh, I don't know whether you watched the news this morning and you saw the, um, the storms in France, like these rivers, overflowing rivers, washing, literally washing houses away off the side of the riverbank as the, 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 wa- the floodwaters wash away at their foundations and the rock that they were built upon. That's what's happened in Corinth. The floodwaters of the world have washed away at their foundations and left them ruined. The church had taken on the characteristics of the culture and in doing so they had lost their love for one another and they had lost their distinctiveness to the world. And so this young and tender church plant is in danger of being choked by the godless environment in which it's growing and by the deceitfulness of sin in the hearts of those believers. Now, sometimes when we, when we get to a, a book of the New Testament, it could be hard for us, 2,000 years on, to, to look at it and say, well, what does it really mean to us? Is it really applicable to us? But Corinthians is utterly applicable to us, very relevant, because we live in a culture that is very similar to Corinth. It's a godless culture. It's a pagan culture. It's a sex-obsessed culture. It's a culture that is concerned most about wealth and power and style over substance and upward social mobility and liberal sexual ethics. And so the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, has great, great application to us because the same problems that dog them dog us, even in the church. We can be tempted to fawn over the rich and the hobnob with... those that we think are elite, that we we try and we curry favour with those that we perceive are powerful or intellectual or influential. Divisions can easily arise amongst us as we, uh, because of our stubborn pride, we get concerned with our self-achievement, with our self-exaltation. Sexual sin can be a temptation to where it can compromise the holiness of our church. Doctrines and beliefs could be adjusted to fit in with society to make them more pliable or, or, or acceptable or, or, you know, uh, to the society we live in. Sometimes churches judge how spiritual they are on the basis of the spiritual gifts that are exercised. So all of these things that the Corinthians were facing, we to a certain degree face too. So the Corinthian problems are the church's problems today. The Corinthian problems are British problems today. So we need to hear Paul's remedy for the disease that plagues the Corinthians and the remedy for the challenges that we face. So what is Paul's remedy? Well, we find it, first of all, spelled out in the first nine uh, nine verses of chapter one. So I'm going to read that together uh, and then we'll just explore a little bit more about what he has to say to us. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses one to nine. Please read along with me. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here's a quick question that you can try and answer in the room or at home. Did anybody get the remedy that Paul points us to? Ten times in nine verses he uses the same words. Anybody spot it? He tells us about Jesus. Ten times in nine verses, Paul highlights for us the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, because the gospel and Jesus Christ are first and foremost in Paul's mind, in Paul's heart, and what the Corinthians need more than anything else, and what we need more than anything else, is Jesus Christ. So to prevent the Corinthians and to prevent us from plummeting into a godless abyss, Paul brings them back to Christ and the good news of the gospel. Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants us as we read this book together to know that the gospel of grace, of, of the grace of God in Jesus Christ is the best news ever. It changes everything. It shapes everything. That He wants us to know that God intends for the gospel to permeate every part and every dimension of every Christian life and every aspect of the corporate community life of his church to shape both our thoughts and our lifestyles in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ and reflects him in the world. So the answer to every dispute and every matter that was dogging the believers in Corinth and that might confront us in Bristol in 2020, Paul wants us to recalibrate it and rethink it and live it out in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. Paul wants this messy church in Corinth and he wants our messy church in Bristol to know that the grace of God and the power of the gospel at work in them and at work in us is more fundamental and more foundational than our geography, than our history, than our citizenship than our sin, than our failings and our shortcomings or anything or everything else that we might use to determine our identity. Let me say that again because it's the, the most important thing I want to say this morning. He wants them to know that the grace of God and the power of the gospel at work in them and at work in us is more foundational and more fundamental than geography, history, citizenship, sin, Anything else that we might use to give ourselves identity, the gospel is much more important. And so in 1 Corinthians, you'll find that it's a little bit of like a question and answer session where the, the Corinthians have asked Paul some questions and he's going to give his answer. And then he's also going to address other issues that he's aware of because of the reports that he's been receiving. And as we work our way through the book, we're going to see there's relational problems, there's moral problems, there's lifestyle problems, there's worship problems, there's doctrinal problems. But the pattern and way in which Paul handles all of those problems is the same. He's going to start by describing the problem and then he's going to give the solution. 
And every time he describes the problem, even though they're different problems, the solution is always the same. And the solution is always Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. So in verses 10 to 17 then of chapter 1, he's going to show us and show the Corinthians how it works. Now we haven't got time to read it, but in these next seven verses of chapter 1, um, what we have is a description of the toxic divisions that have arisen in the church as internal squabbles have divided the church into competing cliques. So we've got people saying, I'm following Peter and I'm following Paul and I'm following Apollos. Oh, and some people might even be saying, oh, I'm following Jesus. And they've divided and separated out into separate camps and they're all trying to trample on one another in a, in a desperate scramble to prove themselves to be the best. And so there's great divisions that have gone on. And they're not theological dis- divisions, they're personality divisions. They're quarreling over the, who their favorite leader is. They're quarreling over uh, the style of leadership that they prefer. It's a little bit like if we got, it, this is what happens in our house, especially during football season. We've got a Man City fan, a Chelsea fan, and a Man United fan, and they argue incessantly, don't you, about who is the best, the best team. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, we've got a cousin who's a Spurs fan, and there's obviously no argument because they're not a fav- they're not the best team. Uh, but they argue incessantly, and they go back and forth. And that was what was happening. Man City are the best. No Chelsea are the best. No Man United are the best. And it's like that here in Corinth. I'm Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Apollos. And they were arguing about style over substance. Who had the most pizzazz? And as the body of Christ, as the, as the Corinthian church pulled in different directions, it threatened to dismember the entire church, rip them apart, resulting in broken relationships, broken fellowship and broken gospel witness. Now, if it was me, my solution is often to sit down and say, well, let's, let's talk about the relative merits of each individual. Let's talk about, okay, let's talk about the relative merits of Chelsea. Let's talk about the relative merits of Man United. Let's talk about the relative merits of Manchester City. And let's agree that we can, we can hold different opinions, but let's just hold them humbly and let's respect one another's opinions and let's just be chill about it all. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't sit them all down and say, I know what we'll do. Let's hold a SWOT analysis on who the greatest leader is. Let's identify their strengths and their weaknesses and their opportunities and their threats. And let's just, and then we'll work it out. No, what he does is he goes straight at the jugular and he says, listen, the church isn't about human people and about human personalities and human leaders. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. His whole solution to the problem that that we encounter in the very first chapter is to reframe it in light of the gospel because he wants the gospel to inform and influence and change and transform their relationships and so his solution is this the church is not about the human personalities that lead it it's about Jesus the church is to be centered on Jesus it's to orbit around Jesus the church is never to be a popularity contest or a style contest Churches are not to be defined by the strength of human personalities. They're to be centered on and defined by Christ. He's the only one who died for you. He's the only one who saved you. He's the only one who's rescued you. He cannot be divided and therefore his body can't be divided and shouldn't be divided. The gospel should change the way that we view our relationships. Disunity arises often in churches because Christians take their eyes off Jesus and put them on something or someone else. 
And Paul here says, listen, put your eyes back on Jesus. You've got, your eyes have slipped off Jesus and they've got, they're onto yourself. So you say, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. He says, let's say this, we follow Jesus. The root of all horizontal fractures in our relationship is, is always a vertical fracture. Let me, let me try and explain that a little bit more because I'm not sure I said that clearly enough. If we are struggling with relationships as Christians horizontally, it will usually and normally reflect that there has been some kind of breakdown between in our relationship with God. Okay? When horizontal relationships are out of whack, it's a usual sign that there is a vertical disconnect between us and God. We've taken our eyes off of God, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, and therefore then we've put them elsewhere and it's given us problems. Because either people aren't meeting our expectations or they're letting us down or they've offended us and they've sinned against us and because the gospel isn't functioning for us, we sin against one another. But Paul here is trying to remind us that the gospel changes us. We have been united to Jesus. The gospel is a message that our vertical relationship with God has been mended through Jesus Christ. He has experienced and absorbed the vertical fracture, if you like, on our behalf so that through his death and resurrection, we might be changed to experience restored relationship with God and renewed and restored relationships amongst one another. That's why the gospel is so important to our relationships, because it tells us when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are reminded that he is our head and we're his body and we're to be united. We're reminded of his work for us, that we didn't save ourselves and that should produce humility. As we remember, we're all sinners saved by grace and brought into the family of God through his amazing love for us. He reminds them, that they've all been baptised into Christ. Like we looked at in Ephesians chapter 4. There's one God and one Father of us all. We've received one Spirit through one Lord and it's signified through one baptism. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we put on our gospel glasses, it changes our perspective and it changes our hearts. And all the way through the book of Corinthians, we'll see how the gospel is to change us from our personal relationships in the church, to our understanding of sexual ethics, to how we view the resurrection. The gospel transforms us. But here in chapter one, it's the pathway to unity. So we're excited to get back into this series because richly stored up in 1 Corinthians is the good news of a crucified and risen saviour who is our Lord, who is the solution to every problem, the pardon for every sin and a comfort for every fear. The Bible Project made a video, an overview video that will be on the blog this week about 1 Corinthians that you can watch to remind you of the flow of the book. But in their kind of summary sentence right at the end, the Bible Project says this, unfortunately it won't come up on the screen, but they say this about 1 Corinthians, they say, the gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality, it's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing life through the lens of the gospel. Let's pray together.